think, you know, I, the five days here kind of helped me to kind of create, you know, kind of the outline for it. And um, I hadn't really thought about it before. And when we get done talking today, I think you'll even understand a little bit more how I connected with this. And, um, and apparently this was something the Lord wanted me to do. Um, I mean, I've spoken a lot of different topics. I've probably spoken more places than I can imagine, both in the Adventist circle, outside the Adventist circle. Um, I've done prep presentations. I've, you know, been confirmed by the United States Senate for positions. So I've been before Congress in a number of, so I've had a lot of things I've had a chance to do. But I've never thought about the possibility of writing something in the area of stewardship. And after being here for the last couple of days with you guys, it has really kind of given me a real thought and a real, you know, interesting ideas. And somebody told me when the first day I was here, they said one of the biggest mistakes I've made in the work that I've done is I didn't write down enough things. I didn't document enough. I didn't take my ideas and put them down on paper so I could actually take a look at it again. And he said, if I was younger, I would never make that mistake again. And he said to me, you know, whatever you're doing here, if it's something that you think you may want to remember, make sure to document it. Possibly write a book. Put a couple of chapters together. Just take your time and let the Lord kind of continue to speak to you. So, you know, that's my Carolina experience. I don't even like reading books, and now I'm getting ready to write a book. So, you know, this is something that I hadn't thought about before. But I just want to praise the Lord for the opportunities that he has presented for me to be here. Mm. They were gone before I was interested. And I got interested in genealogy. And in uh, 2005, I've been trying to write my life history. And even one of my kids and grandkids said, Want to know now? Mm-hmm. I'm going to read that for them. But, oh, Grandpa did that? Oh, it's very wow. powerful. <laughs> That'll be very powerful. Um, I, I, I'll tell you my own personal secret. I just recently did my, my Ancestry.com the other day. And uh, actually, I bought it for my wife to do for her birthday. And I knew that if she did hers, she would keep asking me, why didn't I do mine? So we just decided to do them at the same time. And, and when I got back my, um, my results, it really kind of surprised me. I mean, I expected to have something that connected to the continent of Africa. But for some reason, I'd always thought that I had some type of Ghanaian kind of like connection. And, and it turns out that I'm 22% Benin Togo. And I was like, really, Benin, Togo. And then I was like 25% Nigerian. And I was 3% Irish. And I kind of <laughs> knew that part, because my mother is West Indian, and her father's family name, I believe, came from Ireland. It was made a name of Holness. But the, the real interesting is last week, I just got an email from somebody who says, I'm your second cousin. You know, because they're connected into the whole system as well. And, and they wanted to know, you know, I don't know how I'm related to you, but I have this line, I have this line, I have this line. Which one do you think you are? And one of them was Jamaican. And I said, well, that must be the line, you know. And so, and, uh, and I think based on her DNA, it's pretty clear that we're second cousins. And so the ability to be able to learn things and to see things and to, realize that people can be that close to you from a relationship standpoint and you don't even know. It's also a reminder of what kind of miracle this is that the God we serve does, you know, the, the ability to be able to see and do things through him that, you know, I just find to be just, just unbelievably intriguing. So, um, but uh, 
that's my new thing I'm trying to do is figure out where I come from and things of that nature. But that's been quite, quite, quite a bit of fun. So well, why don't we go ahead and get started? Why don't we start with a word of prayer today and let's just bow our heads. And uh, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you have been doing for us, Lord, and learning new things in the area of stewardship, learning new things in the area of just being more like you. And we ask, God, that you would continue to be with us in all that comes our way. And I just simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So as a little bit of a kind of a recap, for those of you who haven't been with us from the very beginning, what we've been doing is we've been taking what we call a journey of stewardship. Um, stewardship kind of from a church perspective is something where we always think about tithe and offerings. And, you know, how do you give more in tithe and offerings? Are you giving your 10%? Are you giving your 5%? Are you, are you doing more than what you are capable of doing? But we've tried to take stewardship a little bit and look at it from a more of expansive view this week. We started off the first day talking about the concept of having your mind over your money. Then we went to the next day, we're talking about, you know, the gift that keeps on giving. And that gift we talked about was being gratitude. It's impossible to be a good steward if you're not grateful as to who you are and what your life is. And we talked a little bit more yesterday. We talked a little bit about our spiritual gifts. Because if part of being a steward is managing the resources that God has given you, then first of all, you've got to understand what the resources are that you own. What have you been asked to manage? And so sometimes you have to sit back and take a look at your gifts. And so we'll go back to the, the original definition that we're focusing on. And we're saying that from a biblical standpoint, stewardship is utilizing and managing all resources God provides for the glory of God and for the betterment of his creation. So if you look at stewardship from that standpoint, it means that everything that you have, everything that you possess, everything that has come your way has actually come from God. And he is asking that you have one job, and that is to be a great manager of what he has given you. So if you think about stewardship from the standpoint that takes us outside of tithe and offering, but think about it from the standpoint that I have to manage the resources I've been given by God in a way that uplifts him, but in more importantly, in a way that also uplifts other people, then I think it can cause us to think about stewardship in a much more expansive way. So today what I wanted to do is I wanted to get probably more biblical in stewardship than I've been over the last couple of days. And, and today I want to talk a little bit of what I would call the five basic biblical principles of stewardship, starting with the idea that stewardship is utilizing and managing all the resources that God has given you and managing it in such a way that you are going to be uplifting him, but also uplifting other people. So we start with that concept in mind, and then we take a look at what God may have in store for us as it relates to our concepts today. I couldn't help but to kind of take a look at the New Testament. And when I looked at the New Testament and it defined that basically the concept of stewardship revolves around the concept of being a servant of God. Servanthood and stewardship is something that is impossible to separate. But what I found even more interesting is when I was in school at Andrews University, I graduated with a major in economics. And when I was in the study of economics, it was in the business department. 
But what I found out is that economics is actually a concept that's really connected to stewardship. If you go back to the original Greek language, and there's a word that's called oikonomia, and oikonomia is the Greek word that's broken into two parts in which oikos means house, and nomos means land and law, and therefore the combination of both of them means that you have what is called the house law. But oikonomia, when you are actually putting it in a complete context, is defined in English as being economy. And when you look at the concept of something being economy, the real translation from English takes that same thing and makes it not about economy, but they actually make it about stewardship. So if you think about it from a big picture standpoint, whenever you start thinking about economics, and when we're now in election season, one of the first things you always hear people start talking about is the economy. How is the economy doing? How are we doing from this aspect of the economy or that aspect of the economy? In reality, what they are really saying is, how is our stewardship going? How are we managing the resources of our economy in a way that we can probably find ourselves to be in the best position that we can be? When I was in school studying economics, one of the big principles that we used to deal with was the concept that if you have a finite world and you have an infinite number of people that keep coming into the world, then at some point in time we're probably going to be in a situation where we're going to have too many people to be able to really manage ourselves in this world. The whole purpose of that concept was talking about how can you be a good steward of these resources. And most economists thought that we would get to a point in time very soon where we would not be able to create the amount of food that we would need just to be able to feed the number of people that kept happening in this world. But we noticed that that didn't happen, and why? Because there was one thing that was not taken into account, and it was a change in technology. You can't always figure out how technology comes into the base. And so on one hand, you manage your resources in such a way, but you also have to think about the fact that there may be other things that come in that help and train you how to manage your resources just a little bit better. So if you think about the big picture of even who we are from a world standpoint, the economy, the management of our resources, how we go about engaging in this activity is nothing more than stewardship. Stewardship then becomes really the primary focus that we generally think about from our world's perspective. And it goes back a little bit to what we were talking about yesterday even if you go back to the Garden of Eden in the very beginning of time, man's primary job was given by God to basically do what? To have dominion and authority and control over the earth. Dominion, authority, ruling is basically stewardship. They were called to manage the Garden of Eden. They were called to name all the animals. They were responsible for taking care of this place not because they owned it, because God owned it, but they were asked to manage it or to be good stewards for him. So even from the beginning of time, if you go back and take a look at things, stewardship is really connecting with Christianity. It's impossible to be a good Christian if you haven't learned how to be a good steward. It's impossible to really live in this world in a way in which you can gain all of what you're looking for if you haven't learned how to be a good steward. So when you think about what goes on from a steward standpoint, and you think about many of the stories in the Bible, you'll realize that sometimes some of the most critical people 
in the Bible were known for their stewardship. Think about the example of Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house. Joseph was told that you basically have total control of the household. He made all the decisions in the household. As a matter of fact, the Bible said that everything that his hand touched prospered while he was in Potiphar's house. But at some point, it was clear that Joseph didn't own Potiphar's house, but he was given all the authority to manage Potiphar's house. In other words, he was deemed as an extraordinary steward in this particular household. And when you take a chance to sit back and say, sometimes the role of a steward is a great job. Joseph had what some people would consider to be one of the greatest jobs that he could have had. He worked in one of the best houses. He called all the shots. He managed all the people. And sometimes we have to learn to be content with what God has asked us to do. And when God says that he wanted to make man in his image, then it seems to me that he wanted to make man in an image of learning how to be a good steward. So the concept of stewardship is something that even when we go back to biblical times, It becomes very, very clear as to what was going on and what God's intent for us to be. So with that thought in mind, I'd like to take us a little bit further past the concept of what happened in the Garden of Eden and start to get a little bit more focused on the fundamentals of what we might be able to do from a stewardship standpoint, understanding the five what I would call biblical principles. And what I think I'm going to do, I'm going to give you the principles right off the bat right now, and then we'll circle back and we'll deal with them. So principle number one is going to be persistence. Persistence is the first principle of biblical stewardship that we're going to talk about. Principle number two is going to be called planning. Planning would be the second most important aspect of how I would look at in terms of what we would be doing from a stewardship standpoint. Principle number three is what I would call proportionate. A percentage or a proportionate of what you would do from a stewardship standpoint has to go into the whole idea of being a good steward. Principle number four, and it's the one that some of us struggle with, is pleasantness. In other words, you can't be a good steward if you're one of these people who is never pleasant. An unpleasant steward is not a steward at all. It's just an angry individual none of us want to be around. The fact of the matter is, is when God calls us to do something special for him, there are certain ways that we have to operate when we're engaged in that activity. And last but not least, we want to make sure that we are purposeful in our stewardship. Because when we are purposeful in our stewardship, we find ourselves being more intentional about what God has for us to do instead of just engaging in activities that seem to be simply by happenstance. So let's go back to the beginning. If we talk about the concept of stewardship, we talk about some of the things that we want to do, we want to never forget the difference. Because remember, we talk about there's a difference between being an owner and there's a difference between being a steward. Now, if you've owned things in the past, you kind of know what the difference is. Because, see, when you own something, you believe that it belongs exclusively to you. It's my automobile. It's my house. It belongs to me. But when you're a steward, you are somebody that basically you are managing somebody else's assets. In other words, you may get to use my house. You may get to live in my house. You may even get to sleep in my bed in my house, but it's still my house. The difference between ownership and the difference between stewardship. 
Owners also get a chance to use all of their resources any way that they like. Sometimes you see people and you say, I wonder why they do that with their car. I wonder why they do that with this thing. And you say, it looks like that's not the way to manage it. But guess what? When you own something and it belongs to you, generally you can do whatever you want with it. But when you're a steward, you don't get to use things any way you want. In most instances, most of us actually try to treat things better than what we would normally do with it. Sometimes if you're borrowing your neighbor's saw, you might be more delicate with how you use that saw than if you were using your own saw. Because you say to yourself, if I break it, it's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. But if I break my neighbors, then that puts me in a completely different situation. But the most important part about being a steward, and this is the one that I think I've struggled with myself, is if you have received Christ in your life in any way, you are a steward. You don't get a chance to claim that you're not. The mere fact that you accept Jesus Christ in your life and all the blessings that comes with it, you have now taken on a responsibility of being a steward on behalf of God. So every time you show up and you want to be involved in something from a Christian activity and God has sent you to do something, you have to start from the standpoint that I am now being a steward for God and therefore I have a specific responsibility that it takes to come into play. Somebody read this text for me, Psalms 24 and and verses 1. And one of the things we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about the biblical concepts of stewardship. And just so everybody's aware, this does not have to be a dialogue, I'm sorry, just a monologue on my part. If there are thoughts that you have or questions that you have that you'd like to raise your hand and shoot in while we're talking, please feel free to do so because that's how we've been operating all week long. And I don't want anybody to think that you're going to sit here and listen. But if you got a thought, you have a question, you want to raise your hand or just please just bring it up. This is what we'd like to do. But in the meantime, somebody read Psalms verses 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So what does that mean? That means that all that we see around here doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. And anything that goes on from the Lord's perspective means that we have to put ourselves in a position where we are taking care of it. In other words, my business might belong to me, but this world all belongs to God. The process of how I go about managing things is something that only God can have for me to do. So let's start talking about the first principle of stewardship, persistence. Many of us lose out on the blessings that God has for us because we lose out on our persistence. We bump into something that maybe slows us down a little bit. We have something that discourages us along the way. And what ends up happening is we get discouraged and we stop moving. And we find out that we are no longer doing what God has for us to do because something has gotten in the way and told us that we can't move forward anymore. Scripture teaches us that a faithfulness is a necessary quality in order to possess being a steward. If you are not faithful in some way and you are not willing to move forward in some way and trusting God to be what he would call for us to be is faithful, we will never be able to be good stewards for him. And in order to be a good steward, in addition to being faithful, we have to turn out that we are also going to be dependable. You cannot be a good steward if nobody can depend on you. If everyone wonders if you're going to show up the next day when something's happening, then that means you're not being a good steward. 
You ever had one of those programs at church where they say we're all going to come together on Sunday morning and we're going to do this and then only three of you show up? And then we wonder the next week why the programs aren't moving away we would like for them to move? The fact of the matter is, is we have to determine that we are going to be dependable when it comes to doing the will of God because if we're not going to be dependable in coming to do the will of God, we are not going to be good stewards. We have to put ourselves in a position where we know that we can be faithful and follow through. I remember I used to have a job where I worked with a large group of attorneys, and, and we used to have this meeting every week. And every week we'd get together and we'd talk about what we were going to accomplish and what we were going to do during the course of the week. And I started noticing that every week we'd get back together and we still kept talking about the same thing we were going to accomplish. And then week after week, I kept noticing that the meetings got longer and longer and longer, but we were accomplishing less and less and less. And I think sometimes we can get caught up in the committees and the talking that we lose the fact that we actually need to do something. Sometimes I make fun of myself as an Adventist that the Adventists are the masters of the committees. Whenever there's something we want to do in the church, we always love to put together a committee. I think I told the group yesterday when I was growing up, you know, we had nominating committee and then we had a staring committee to pick the nominating committee. And then there was another committee to determine who should be in a committee that made the staring committee. By the time we got to selecting who needed to be involved in church, it was already exhausting. Sometimes we committee ourselves to death. And every now and then all God wants us to do is to just stop and move forward in his name. Don't get so caught up in what we want to do from a committee perspective that nobody can depend on you. When I used to practice law for a living, the most important thing that clients used to say they wanted is to be able to depend on knowing that you would be there for them. When I called, you answered the phone. You know, when I practiced law for 25 years, there were a lot of people who used to like their assistants to pick up the phone. I always believed that I ought to pick up the phone. When the phone rang and the client heard me on the phone immediately, it always seemed to give them a sense that I thought that what they were doing was important. I liked the idea that you heard my voice right off the bat so that you would say, ah, oh, Orland's for real. I don't have to go through this whole chain of activity before I get to him. It's kind of similar with the relationship we have with God. When I have a problem and I'm feeling something that I need, I want to hear from God immediately. I don't want to go through any back and forth, back and forth. I want to know that the Lord is hearing me and feeling me and putting me in a position where I feel like I'm worthy and I feel like he loves me. And when I have that feeling, then guess what? I want to work harder for him. So good stewardship means establishing a relationship where, one, you're dependable, two, you're engaged in a quality of faithfulness, and three, we can find ourselves in a situation where we are allowed to lift somebody up along the way. The other thing with persistence, and I mentioned this a little bit yesterday, is when you are having a bad day, the best thing you can do is find somebody else who's having a bad day and try to help them out. There's nothing better than talking to other people who are having bad days when you think you're having a bad day. Most of the time, you realize your day is really not that bad compared to what they now started to talk to you about. But the ability to lift somebody else up. I don't know if you've ever been in those situations where you talk with somebody and afterwards they say something to you along the lines of, it was so good that you were just willing to listen to what I had to say. 
that's one of the things I kind of took me a long time to learn as a husband, that every time you heard something, you weren't necessarily supposed to fix it. Sometimes you just had to listen. Somebody heard that before. Sometimes you just had to listen. Sometimes all that is required is to be there and to be in the presence of understanding that something is going on. And as Christians, that's also part of being a good steward, being somebody who can listen and not necessarily have to put themselves in the middle of whatever else is going on. So persistence is the key to being part of stewardship. The other reason persistence is a key to being part of stewardship is it's been my experience that God normally doesn't send my blessings to me where I'm standing. He usually sends my blessings somewhere out there in the future where I'm supposed to be. So when the Lord tells me, Orlin, I need you to go out there, and I decide that I'm going to stay right here, and then I wonder why things aren't going well for me right here, it's because the blessing that he has in store for me is really out there where I'm supposed to be. And when I delay and lose persistence in moving forward, all the things that God has in store for me that he can't give to me right here, I end up missing out on. And then sometimes we wonder, you know what, there's a home that I'm living in. I don't feel I should be living there. Well, you were unwilling to move forward over there where he has your house. But because you lost your zeal to keep moving, because you gave up on your persistency at that point in time, you end up hurting yourself. And guess what? When you don't show up and get the blessing God has in store for you, that blessing out there, he's expecting you to take and to add to other people's lives as well. So now your lack of persistency doesn't just harm you, but it ends up harming all the other people that God had intended for you to be blessing as well. So I would just simply say, first and foremost, when we think about biblical principles of stewardship, persistency is key. We don't want to get weary in doing good. We don't want to get weary in not understanding just because we don't see it right now that it doesn't make the most sense in the future. Don't allow your current situation to be in charge of everything that you're going to be doing in the future. Sometimes we think because we're having a bad day today, that means we're going to have a bad life. Not at all. You're just having a bad day. You're just having a bad hour. Sometimes you're just having a bad couple of minutes. And the fact of the matter is, is you can't allow your present circumstance to make a difference in all of that. Yesterday we used a statement where we were saying that it's not your outside circumstances that determines who you are, but it's what's inside of you that will eventually determine who you are. And we said because the same hot water that will make a potato soft is the same hot water that will make an egg hard. So depending on who you are on the inside, the circumstances around you start to change. And the circumstances around you will start to change because you don't allow what's on the inside of you to keep things in the same direction. So that was persistence. Number two. I'm sorry, question. Go ahead. Sure. Oh, yes. Dependability. Reliability being someone that people know will show up and be dependable. There's nothing worse than being asked to do something and you show up and you think people are going to be there and they don't show up at all. I mean, that is probably one of the most discouraging things that can happen in life. People don't post when they're supposed to. So I think that persistence falls right into the line of reliability and dependability. And some people even call it stick 
the willingness to stay with something to the end, getting the job done. Because our natural tendency is for us to give up. You push against the wall, the wall pushes back against you, and you say, all right, I guess I'm not supposed to go anywhere. But sometimes the reality is you push against the wall and the wall pushes against you. It's just a test to see will you push back again. Because God wants to know are you willing to be there. Please go ahead. Oh, so my reliability should not always produce satisfaction. Well, but let's just think about that a second. Because sometimes when God is calling you to be reliable, the thought process that most of us had is because we're looking for there to be something successful that's supposed to happen as a result of me being there. But sometimes reliability is just focused on are you faithful enough to go? And you may go there and not change the world at all how you may see it. So the satisfaction that we may be looking for may be something that may happen so far down the road and the impact that we have may impact somebody who you never got a chance to talk to and you never got a chance to see, but you have no idea what that impact might be. We had a perfect testimony from my brother over here a couple of days ago where he said that in 1984, somebody gave him a Bible. He bought a Bible, somebody gave him, he wasn't an Adventist, he wasn't anything that was probably focusing, he had just left to go to the military, 10 years later something else changed in his life, 10 years after that, which was 20 years later, he actually was ready to join the church, and guess what, he opened up this Bible that he had, and it had all the principles of Adventism in there, didn't even know, and then he said that he went and found the person who gave him the Bible and got back in touch with that individual 20 years later. Now, this person who probably gave him the Bible had no idea he was going to have that kind of impact on his life. But that's why God calls us to be faithful. Sometimes you may give somebody the Bible and say, I gave a guy a Bible and he never came to church. But you have no idea what God has intended down the road. So that's why we have to be persistent and dependable and reliable and not willing to walk away when we see things that look like they're not moving in the right direction. Because God is going to handle things on the other side. So I think the point that you're making regarding looking for that satisfaction, sometimes the immediate satisfaction of what you do may not show up. But the impact may be 20 years later, you get a phone call from somebody that said, you know what, you gave me a Bible. And it has some things in there that I hadn't looked at. But now I'm looking at it now, and guess what? It's changing my life, and thank you for being that person. And I think that is so important from being a steward. You know, we live in a life where we love instant gratification. You know, a lot of people who are actors, they love to be on stage because they say as soon as they're done, they get the applause. When you do a movie, you do this, you cut, you do this, you cut. You really don't get the instant gratification. Sometimes you do a movie, it doesn't show up for a year. By the time it shows up, you almost forgot what you did in the movie. Then you hear whether they liked it or didn't like it. The immediate gratification sometimes is what we need as people in order we can be in a position to move forward. But Christ is telling us, trust him and trust him alone. And that's all we need to worry about. Please go ahead, man.
Amen. And that's what we have to be willing to do, persistent, following the will of God, no matter what we think the result is going to be. You going to raise your hand? Oh, okay. <laughs> so why don't we go to the second point? We're going through persistency. Now we've got to go through planning. This is where some of us really begin to fall off. We don't like planning. We like to just show up and hopefully just, what do they call it, uh, you know, let the, let the situation just, you know, fill it out on its own, you know. I, I'm one of those kind of people, I'm not the best planner in the world, you know. I, I'm kind of consistent on what I do, but, you know, I'd rather sometimes let the game come to me, you know. Let, let me feel how it's operating. You know, you get out there and say, well, let's, let's see how it goes for the first couple of hours and then we'll make some decisions after that. Well, the Lord actually wants us to be a little bit different. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us something that I think most of us have heard before. And somebody pull it up for me. 1 Corinthians verses 14 and verse 33. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33, which lets us know what God thinks about planning. Anybody have that one for us? 1 Corinthians 14 verses 33. Mm, God is not the author of confusion. And guess what? If we don't plan, what do we generally end up with? Confusion. If we don't put in place something that's supposed to be giving us some guidelines or outlines as to what we're supposed to do, it generally leads to confusion. The Bible says that the Lord wants everything to be decent and in order. And therefore, in order to be a manager of what God has put in your life, we have to be willing to plan. And you've got to be willing to plan from the smallest things to the biggest things. Because sometimes we're of the thought, well, this isn't big enough for me to have to plan. It's too small in the grand schemes of life. Let me tell you something. Failure to plan over the little things usually mean that you have a catastrophe with the big things. No matter how small it is, there needs to be a plan. And one of the things I was, uh, I preached a sermon not too long ago, and I was looking at the concept of what we have to do with choices, and I saw this data that said that each of us as adults make approximately 35,000 choices and decisions a day. And when you think about having to make 35,000 choices and decisions, that's like, what am I going to wear today? What time am I going to get up? Am I going to wear my hair this way, or am I going to wear my hair that way? Am I going to go with the gray outfit, or am I going to go with the blue outfit? Am I going to leave to go at 8 o'clock, or am I going to leave to go at 8.05? All of these are decisions that you make every day. But each decision and choice that you make, believe it or not, you're supposed to talk with God about it. You're supposed to bring him into the equation every time. And sometimes we lose track of the fact that there should not be anything that we do or any plan that we make that hasn't already had some type of conversation with God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, 35 times a day, I got to call on Jesus 35,000 times a day? Well, the reason that you have to is because there's also one other caveat, and that each and every day there'll be one decision that you'll make that'll be the difference between life and death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, let's think about that a second, because sometimes we think that when we hear from God, that we hear from it in ways that might be audible. Sometimes we hear about it in ways that we kind of, you know, have some vision or something along those lines. Sometimes God speaks to us by how he just touches our heart. Sometimes it's simply, you know, you ever had those moments where you feel like this is what you're supposed to do or, or you have an inclination that you're hearing something? Because what the Lord requires of us is that he says we should pray without ceasing which means that we should always have a moment or a prayerful spirit. And when you're always having a prayerful spirit, that allows the Lord to keep talking to you as well. So there are times where you may not stop and say, this was decision number one, what did God say to me? But when you are living your life a certain way, there are things that the Lord has spoken to you from a global standpoint that end up impacting every little thing that you do. I can't say that I sat down this morning and said, God, I I got the green shirt and I got the gray shirt. Which one should I wear? But I do believe that at the end when the Lord told me, put on the gray shirt, I wasn't quite sure why, because I was actually going to wear the green shirt today. But now that I think about it, my gray shirt works better with the rain than the green shirt that I was going to have on. (laughs) Sometimes the Lord sees things in the future that you can't even imagine. And in your mind, you're like, I don't know if the Lord told me to do that. But then you go through the rest of the day and you start realizing that decision works so much better than what you might have thought. And it's not because you're super intelligent and it's not because you're clairvoyant. It's because the word of the Lord actually spoke to you in a way you didn't even realize. I'll go to you and then I'll go in the back right there. Oh, no, no, no. Dominate. Dominate. Go ahead. Absolutely. Mm, but guess what? God even allows you to make bad choices. So, absolutely. And sometimes the choice that the Lord has for you to make, because remember, at the end of the day, we're still all free to choose. Sometimes God tells you to go out that door and you decide, you know what? I don't want to go out that door. And the Lord allows you to make choices. So even when you pray, choices can still be made that are wrong. And it's not because you're not trying to follow the will of God. It's simply because we live in a world where we're born in sin and we're shaping in iniquity and our natural inclination is to do wrong. Most of us don't like to talk about that, but our natural inclination is not to do the right thing. You know, the Bible tells us all the time that, you know, we are born in sin, we are shaping in iniquity, but our our willingness to do good is not always there. The Apostle Paul said that the good that I thought I was going to do, I don't. And the evil that I thought that I would never do is what I do. So we don't have to be too rough on ourselves that sometimes we end up making the wrong choices because bad choices were made even from the Garden of Eden's time. The question is, what do you do after a choice has been made that we know that is bad? And what do you do after that in order to make a difference in somebody else's life? So prayer doesn't guarantee that we're always going to do the right thing. David prayed a lot and did a lot of bad stuff, but he was still considered to be a man after God's own heart. Not because he always did it right, but because he had his heart in the right place and was always striving for the right things. So I wouldn't worry sometimes that we make bad decisions because we all will make bad decisions. And uh, we serve a God that allows us to make bad decisions. But what he has for you, you will get there. Took the children of Israel 40 years to get to the Canaan land. Should have probably just taken them 40 weeks. Lord had to take them in a couple different areas, but what God has for you is going to be for you. 
So that's how I would look at it in terms of our decisions. Let me go to that lady right behind, and then I'll come back to you here. <coughs> Did you have your hand up? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Please, go ahead, sir. Mm. And do you feel a lot better with that black one on now? He made you happy. <laughs> Stewardship is managing your resources to uplift other people. <laughs> and that's part of what we do in life. You know, there are times where we look at ourselves and we say, I don't know why I'm going this route. I don't know why I'm doing this. You know, to be honest, I've never been to this camp meeting before. I couldn't understand why anybody asked me to speak on this topic. But sometimes the Lord sends you to do things in certain ways for, for reasons unbeknownst. You know, my wife was here. She wasn't, we weren't, she wasn't feeling well earlier this week. She's a musician. She's a singer. And she had laryngitis. She couldn't talk for about 10 days. And then I was telling her, well, you know, I have to go down and do this camp meeting by this lake. And we started saying, wow, well, maybe the fresh air down here will be different. You know, maybe there'll be an opportunity for her to be able to just kind of enjoy nature in a way. And, and I told him, honey, how you accidentally made me walk around the lake yesterday. And so you, we walk around the lake and, and you do all these other things. But the irony was is I actually was booked to come here two years ago and didn't even remember I was supposed to come here. But it turned out that the exact time I was supposed to come here was the perfect time for my wife to be here. And my wife doesn't always travel wherever I travel. And it turned out to be one of the few weeks that she could actually be traveling with me while I was here. So it told me that two years ago the Lord knew that this week was going to be needed, not just for me to be doing something I had not done before, but for my wife to be here. And I think I mentioned to you, we're probably going to come back here whether there's camp meeting or not now. But you never know what God has in store for you. And you never know why he puts some things in store for you. And in my mind, I could have said, well, I just came down here because I felt like coming down here. But in reality, the Lord probably prepared for me to be coming down here two years ago. But all I had to do was be willing to choose to move forward in his name. And that's what God requires of us, the ability to be able to move forward and not to get discouraged when you make bad choices. Because guess what? We're going to make some bad choices. I've made more bad choices than I can think about in life. And I just asked the Lord to allow me an opportunity to resurface and to recommit myself and to relook at things in different ways. Not because there's perfection that's coming my way, but because I believe that I serve a God who still blesses people. And that's the only thing that I can rely on. But the business and the planning and the idea of what we have to do from a stewardship standpoint, I think is key. And a plan also will keep you on track. Sometimes when you have no plan, you're just kind of going in all kinds of different directions. Every now and then, you just need to have a little bit of order to your life. And one of the best ways to get some order to your life is to seek what I would call godly counsel. You ever talk to those people that tell you, I did this the other day because I sat down and talked to my friend that did so-and-so and so-and-so? And then you think to yourself, but your friend has no idea what this is about. Why would you seek that counsel? Well, this is the same thing that God requires of us. There's no need to seek counsel if it's not going to be godly counsel. Because godly counsel is going to lead you astray. I had a friend um, who was an attorney, 
and she was always interesting, and she was a single young lady, and she said she always had girlfriends that would ask her about relationships. And she always told me that I prefaced everything I said to them with this. First of all, I do not have a man. Now I'll tell you what I think. And the reason that I always thought that was interesting because she gave you a parameter up front to realize whether or not this is going to be good counsel for you or not, or whether or not this is the type of counsel that you can rely on. Now, if you decide that you want to rely on it either way, then that's fine, but you got your disclaimer at the beginning. I have never built a house before, but if you would like for me to explain how you should do it, I've got free time. Godly counsel is critical. Counsel for the sake of counsel is a nightmare and a mistake. We have to make sure that who we are getting counsel from, one, that they talk to God on a regular basis. You know, there are times where you want to speak with people about things that are going on in your Christian life, and they're really good people, and they really understand, but if they miss that component of what God means in your life, the counsel you get from them is probably going to be a little skewed. I mean, sometimes you hear people who talk from a psychological standpoint and, and they say, well, the mind should work this way and therefore you should do this. You know, if you don't understand how God works in my life, the counsel that you give me probably is not going to be helpful to me. So godly counsel is going to always be critical in terms of doing your planning. Another point in doing planning that's going to be very important is you have to have a certain amount of awareness. You ever talk with people who you can tell are just lost, clueless, no idea what's really going on? It's frustrating to talk to those kind of people. You cannot be a good steward if you're not aware of where you are, and you're not aware of your circumstances, and you're not aware of what God would have for you to do. Sometimes you just have to be aware, financially aware. You ever have people who you met that have no idea, you know, what's in their bank account? They're just writing checks. They're just going to the store. They're just buying groceries. They're just using their swipe and plug-in and all of this. And then they come back home and they wonder, why do I have all these return checks? Why do I have all these bounce transactions? It's a lack of awareness. You've got to learn to be aware to be a good steward. How could Joseph manage all of Potiphar's house if he didn't know what all the resources were that were there? How could he decide how much we should spend on this if you have no idea what your spending should be? We talked the first day that we were here that there are things you can do. You can either spend above your means, you can spend at your means, or you can spend below your means. Christians need to be looking to spend below their means. Because when you're spending below your means, then it allows you to be able to live a life where you've got a lot less stress, a lot less pain, you're focusing on things that have a lot more to do with finances than, I mean, have a lot more to do with God than with finance. These are the levels that we as Christians need to be focusing and working hard to be. Timely paying of our bills, making sure that you're preparing for the future, things that could go wrong with your house, things that could go wrong with your car, putting yourself in a situation where hopefully you are moving and getting organized financially in a way that makes sense. You know, I started running my own consulting business, and I was looking for a program in which to use to send out my invoices. I worked, ran into this program that was called Working Point. And I loved my Working Point program because, one, it was easy for me to get my information in. 
but it was also easy to create data to let me know what else was going on in my life. How much did I make for the whole year? What did I produce in expenses? How did I go about doing this type of activity? It's just simple planning and preparation. Making sure that you're aware. Making sure that you are doing things that are allowing other people to move in the right direction. <clears throat> Point number three, proportionate. And what do I mean when I say proportionate? I mean that the better that God has been to you is the better that you should be to somebody else. If you've been blessed with much, then you have to be willing to bless others with much. God doesn't give us blessings for us to hoard it and keep it to ourselves. God doesn't give us gifts and talents so that we can enjoy our own self. Sometimes as Adventists, one of the things that I get worried about with our people is we like to do things for us and by us. We like to do programs that kind of help to build up our church, but we don't always spend a lot of time trying to take those same programs to build up the communities where our churches exist. We as Christians have to make sure that we understand that the blessings that we have from God is to always help somebody else. And if you fail to use your blessings to help somebody else, then in my opinion, you fail to do what God has in store for you to do. So when we think about things from a proportional standpoint, it also means that we have to learn how to be generous, how to be willing to give till it hurts. Generosity is critical. Some of us say to ourselves, well, we don't have much, so we have to hold on to it as tight as possible. That's not good stewardship. Holding it as tight as possible means that you don't believe that God is able to give you something else. I hold on to it because I'm afraid I may never get it again. Well, if you're afraid that you may never get it again, that means you don't trust the God that you serve. Because I serve a God who says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I serve a God who's told me that whatever my needs are, my, my food and my water will always be sure. So if I'm afraid to let go of something, all that means is I'm saying I don't have faith that my God is able. And one of the things that we must be willing to do is to be generous. And being generous also means that you have to be willing to give sacrificially. If all I'm giving to you is what I, my excess and what I really wasn't going to use anyway, that's not really being sacrificial. That's not really giving in what I would call proportion. All that is is I had a few extra dollars I wasn't going to spend, so that's what you can take. But if I start to give in a way, that I'm given to the point where it now cuts into what I deem to be my, uh, my core of funds. Now it's showing that I believe that God will do something very special for me. And sometimes God can't help you to see the extraordinary until you're willing to sacrifice beyond where you've been. I found myself one time in a situation where I found that I was talking in prayer meeting and I said, you know what, let's try something this month. I said, for the next 30 days, think about what you would have normally given the church in tithe and offerings. Just think what that dollar figure is. For the next 30 days, let's double it. Let's just double it. We're not going to sit down and do the math. We're not going to sit down and find out whether it makes sense. If you've given them $2,000 next month, then let's do four this month. If you gave them 1000 last month and that's what you were planning to do, let's give them two this month. And what we decided at the end of that 30-day period, we were going to come back to prayer meeting and talk about what God had done for us. 
And I will tell you that some of the testimonies that came after that experience would blow us all away. People were talking about, I didn't know how I was even going to be able to pay my bills. And all of a sudden they were talking about the Lord was helping them. There were people who had, didn't have any jobs that were talking about, the Lord now gave me a new job in which I was making almost twice what I was making before. The idea of being able to trust God is so critical. And the idea of willing to give sacrificially allows God to come and do more for you than you might have even imagined. Please go ahead now. Mm. Um, and so I think I can think of if you help somebody in church that maybe they're willing maybe to use your car. So what's the thing about their car going? And I was told and it cost like twenty dollars, but anyway, so I just went to the monthly and I rented cars and said, Hey, you know, I'm gonna go on a mission trip this month, this is my first one, you know. And I began to realize that every time I was given something from the Lord coming back mm. to me, I was not supposed to do it this way. <laughs> Right, right. But I figured You know, the Bible says, prove me. It says, prove me thou herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will open up the windows of heaven. It doesn't say and sprinkle out a couple of blessings on you. It says, I will open up the windows of heaven and do what? Pour. You know what pouring means? Pouring means you can't hold it in one hand. Pouring means you can't hold it in two hands. He's going to pour out blessings in such a magnitude that there will not be room enough to receive it. In other words, he's saying that even no matter how big your house is, when I get done pouring out what I'm going to pour on you, You'll have to get a new house in order to house all this stuff. And that's why it's so important that if we're just trusting enough to be willing to be sacrificial, the little that you give away, God can bless in ways that you can never imagine. And I don't tell you this because I read this. I tell you this because I've seen it happen in my life. Go ahead, my brother. Absolutely. But it didn't have to be something that hurts you. Absolutely. And I think it's part of the society that we live in that it tells you that what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. We live in a society that says that the way that we win is at the end, we all find out who had the most toys when it's done. We don't live in a life where it talks about trying to make other people happy. We live a life where it's talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as it relates to me. The concept of sacrificing, the concept of giving, and the concept of allowing us to be giving to more and to other people is something that sometimes we look at in this capitalist society we live in as being a sign of weakness. You're so weak that you're willing to give to somebody else when what you need to do is keep it to yourself because at the end of the day, that's how we decide who the winners and the losers are. Who has the most wins? Who has the least losses? You know, I used to tell people, and I've taught 
you know, securities regulation, other courses. And one of the toughest things about capitalism, and not everybody agrees with me, but the toughest thing about capitalism is you have to identify who the winners are. In a capitalist society, it's about winners and losers. But in order to know who the winners are, you got to first figure out who the losers are. And if you don't know who the losers are, sometimes you start making up who the losers should be. And that's why we live in a society sometimes where the least of these, my brethren, are the ones that end up being pushed to the side because once I designate that that's the losing group over there and I'm not a part of them, then that means now that I'm a winner. And sometimes we want to push people down because that's the only way we can determine who the losers are because now I can determine who is the winner. Go ahead, my lady. No, no, that's, that's all right, please. Mm-hmm. Your point is right on, on target, and we talked a little bit about this earlier in the week, that the church is not supposed to be a social club for saints. The, the church is supposed to be a hospital for sinners. This is a place where people who don't have and the sick are supposed to be taken, taken and, and held up in some way. To me, you know, we, when the defining question comes of whether or not we're going to make it into the gates, whether or not God is going to say, well done, now good and faithful servant, the question that's going to be asked is, when people were hungry, did you feed them? And when people were naked, did you clothe them? That means that this whole thing that we do here is about love for our fellow man and love for God. And so if we spend all of our time trying to build more beautiful churches that we can be adorning of ourselves when we come there on every Sabbath and we enjoy what we see and, and we build a brand new kitchen and, and we got this great church van, we don't help anybody in our community, I think we're missing out on something. And I think we're missing out on being good stewards because remember, we're still going back to the resources that God has blessed us with. Are we using them to elevate him and then eventually elevate someone else? And if the answer is that the only thing we're doing with these resources is making ourselves feel better, then that means we've missed out on what it means to be a good steward. My sister here. And that's sometimes not worrying about your situation right where you're standing right now, but to understand that if you serve a God who's been at the, both sides of the continuum, you serve a God who's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He looks at your life not based on where you simply are right now, but he knows where you need to be before. Somebody probably needed that meal that they had, and they probably needed it so badly that they didn't even know how to even go about asking you for it. But sometimes the Lord knows that even when you groan in your spirit, 
he hears what you're saying. Sometimes you don't even have to get the words out of your mouth. He hears what you're saying. He knows your heart. He knows where you want to go. And to me, that's what God is in store for all of us to do. But you know what that really kind of boils down to? And this kind of leads to my next point as it relates to pleasantness. Most of us don't know the difference between a need and a want. Most of us will tell you, well, I need that. But in reality, you just want that. Most of us say, well, I need to have this new car. Nah, you probably just want the new car. I need to have this new house. I need to have this. I need to have that. The fact of the matter is, is that one of the things that we have to learn to do in order to be pleasant is we have to learn to be content with what we have. Most of us are not content with what we have. You cannot be a good steward and not be pleasant. I don't know about you, but the worst thing in the world for me to deal with is unpleasant people. People who just have a bad attitude. Every time you talk to them, they want to talk about what's going wrong in their life. You know, the ones that call, you look at and you like, oh, can't take that call. No, 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 no. I know where that's going. We want to live a life where we can be pleasant, where we can be loving, where we can be Christ-like. You know, the beauty that attracted children to Christ and attracted people to Christ was he was a pleasant individual. Didn't mean that he wouldn't call it like he saw it. Didn't mean that he was soft and mamby-pamby in any way. But it simply meant that he was pleasant in what he was about and he was content with who he was. John the Baptist was not somebody that had a whole lot, but he was content with what he had because he was content that his ministry was simply to prepare a way for the Lord. And when you get caught up in wanting to be more than you think that you deserve, then that's a principle that forces you to grasp things that you never thought you wanted or sometimes grasp things that you never really needed. Somebody go to 1 Timothy 6 and verses 7 through 9. 1 Timothy 6 and verses 7 through 9. Something to help us understand the concept of contentment. 1 Timothy 6 verses 7 through 9. Somebody have that? We own nothing. And just because the world calls you rich doesn't mean you actually have anything either. The Bible talks about it will be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than to make it into heaven. Why? Because sometimes it's the richness that allows you to get to a point where you think you no longer need God. Being content with what you have may be the most important thing that will take place in the name of stewardship. Not looking at what my neighbor has. Not looking at wondering why do they get to live that way. <clears throat> that guy has a bad attitude. Why does he have that nice truck? We don't get to make those decisions. We don't know what's really going on in their lives. But I can tell you that you cannot be a good steward if you're not content at all in what you believe that you deserve. Some of us believe we deserve more. I should have had a raise on my job. I should have been in this position. Why did the Lord have me train this person just so they could take my job? We start developing all these things that we think we deserve and we think we should have. 
The fact of the matter is, is God already knows what you need and you don't know what that other person needs. Sometimes they don't have a spirit that would allow them to survive if they didn't get that job. But he knew that he had brought you up in a way that your mind, your body, and your soul doesn't allow your job to define who you are. The fact of the matter is, is we have to learn to make sure that because something is here doesn't mean it belongs to us. Because something is here simply means that God has asked us to manage it. Even your jobs that you have don't belong to you. The idea that I should have that job, you don't get to make that call. There's some jobs you're not supposed to have. <clears throat> I think I told you guys for I worked at, this, um, at the Security and Exchange Commission. I was attorney, and my boss, who I was working with, we didn't really like each other. And I had this view of life at the time that just avoid them. Don't talk to them. Just do your work. Hang out in this little silo over here. It'll work out for you. Seven years I was there, never got promoted. Trying to do it my way. Thinking that, you know what, I'm smarter than her. Eventually the cream will rise to the top. They'll give me her job. They'll get rid of her. This will all be perfect. Didn't work out that way. And the Lord told me one day as clear as a bell. He's like, well, nothing's good going to happen for you because I didn't tell you to avoid people. I tell you you're supposed to love your enemies. Even if she doesn't like you, that's not an excuse. You're still supposed to like her. And the best thing you can do to an enemy and sometimes the scariest thing you can do to an enemy is turn them into your friend. And you know the day when I left that job after working for her, she and I were in her office, and the day I told her I was leaving to take another job, the both of us were crying like babies in there. Earlier I was crying just because I knew her. <laughs> and now I'm crying because she and I aren't going to work together anymore. It's amazing how the Lord can touch you in ways that you just can't even imagine. And once you take self out of the equation, because that was my struggle, I had to take self out of the equation. I had to take ego out of the equation. I had to take out of the equation that I thought that I had more skill sets than her. I had to take out the equation I was actually doing her work and not getting any credit for it. All that caused me to be bitter, caused me to get to a point where I was thinking to myself, oh, no, I deserve more than this. But what the Lord told me is, I make the calls as to what you get. And I haven't asked you to be in charge. I haven't asked you to be successful. All I ask you to be is faithful. And after that day when the Lord and I had that meeting, I decided I was going to do her work for the rest of my life if I had to. And I didn't care whether I would get any accolades from it or not. And it got to a point where when... <laughs> She was getting promoted to be the director of our whole office, and all of us were saying, oh, Lord, what, what, what can we do that could be worse than this? And she comes into my office and says, Orlin, you're the only person here that talks to me. Would you mind taking my job? First promotion I gotten in seven years. Not because I was any smarter now, not because I was more talented, but I believe it's because I was willing to listen to the Lord and be content with who I was. And once I became content, my trajectory on what I started doing in my career started moving at a 45-degree angle in a way that I can't even explain to you. But for seven years, I decided I was going to do it the way I was going to do it. And for the next seven years after that, I probably got more advancements in jobs than I've ever imagined I would have had in my life. 
I only tell you this to say simply that if you can be content with what God has for you, he will take care of things in ways that you can't imagine. Last point I want to mean is we got to be purposeful in what we do. Biblical principles of stewardship means that there has to be a certain purposefulness to your life. In other words, you can't wake up every day and don't know what you're supposed to be accomplishing. You can't wake up every day and wonder what I'm supposed to be doing. You've got to put yourself in the hands of the Lord and have him tell you as plain as possible, this is the purpose that I have for you in your life. And he will. He will not allow you to be running around, bumping into things, wondering what you're supposed to be doing. There was a time that I couldn't understand what I was supposed to do. But I understand better now what I'm supposed to be doing in life than maybe ever before. And a big part of what I'm supposed to be doing in life, the Lord has made clear to me, is Orland, take the talents that I've given you and use it from the church's perspective so that they may be able to accomplish things that maybe they wouldn't have accomplished before. A lot of the things that I learned in politics, I get a chance to help the church to understand politically that's not going to work. Strategies that we may want to put together that I might have experienced in the past, well, let's go down to Washington. Let's spend a lot of time talking to politicians all day. Let's write, you know, legislation for them. No, 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 that's not how this works. You just got to be somebody's friend before they need you to be a friend. You got to go out and help somebody without any ass back for needing something. I just had lunch the other day with the, um, the public affairs and religious liberty leader for the LDS church um, in the mid-Atlantic area of where I live. I've invited her over to the North American Division office and she spent half the day with me over there. And we sat around talking about the fact that there's so many things that we could be doing in connection with other churches, but we want to be so separate because we're concerned that we may look like them when it's said and done. We've got to do a better job of understanding that we have to be Christians first and be Christ-like in everything that we do. The interesting thing is she and I decided that we were going to work on a program together. She said, you know, we have this great organization. We call it Serve.org. And any activity that any religious organization is doing from a volunteer standpoint, we put on this website. And when we put it on this website, we also send them volunteers to come work on their projects. And I thought to myself, wow. How many times have I have a project where I would have loved to have had another 20 volunteers show up, whether they were Adventists or not? Because if I can get you near where I am and you get a chance to experience the love of Jesus where I am, it probably is going to transform your life. So I don't have to worry about what your denomination is because I'm not there to save you. But I'm supposed to be faithful enough and invite you to understand the God that I serve. God will give you your clear purpose in life. There's nothing more confusion than walking around every day not knowing what you're supposed to do. Some of us are supposed to be teachers. Some of us are supposed to be not teachers. Some of us are supposed to be preachers. Some of us are simply supposed to be there to talk to other people. You know, my wife has this really interesting thing. People come to talk to my wife about stuff all the time. And sometimes I'm right there. They don't talk to me. They just come to talk to my wife. <clears throat> I believe that there's a certain thing that she has, a certain discernment that she has, a certain prayerful quality that she has that people see in her. And they want to come and talk to her about it. I'll be sitting there and folk will just be telling all kinds of stuff in their lives. I'm saying to myself, who are these people? And why are they here? But guess what? That's not my gift. And I'm okay with that. That's not my purpose. 
but I know what I believe God has for me to do. Spend some time in prayer, and the Lord will put you in a position where you can understand exactly what your purpose in life is going to be. It's impossible to be a good steward if you have no idea what you're being a steward over. It's impossible to be a good steward if you're not going to be pleasant in your stewardship. My brother right here. Mm-hmm. And I was inclined to be eager to have more of an And the funny thing you also find out, you find out what they're thinking about you. So when I was with this lady from the LDS at the NAD the other day, um, she said something to me that really blew me away. She said, well, you know, <clears throat> you know, it's always good to visit with the Adventists. And she said to me, because you guys are the only ones that really worship on the true Sabbath. And she said another thing to me that was interesting. She said, you know, when I was in Bible college, you know, in one of her, in one of the LDS kind of Bible colleges, she said, we used to have worship on Saturday. Because in the Bible college, it was clear in the Bible what the seventh day of the week was. And so I was stunned when she said this to me. But the reality is, is there are people who know who you are and what you're about, and you're probably having an impact on them in a way that you may not have known. You know, and it kind of, it's interesting how dots connect, because she said to me, I'd love for one of my pastors in D.C. to connect with some other Adventist pastors in D.C. and do some things together. And since I go to a, a church in Washington, D.C., well, I said, my pastor might be great for that. So by the time I talked to my pastor, she told me that they had just built a new facility a couple blocks away from our church. I called my, I saw my pastor at Wednesday night prayer meeting. I said, hey, I met these people from the LDS. They tell me there's a church that's being built over here or something. And he says to me, oh, I already know who they are. I met them. I said, how'd you meet them? Well, one of the things that my church does is it allows all of the, um, the parents that do homeschooling to meet once a month in our church. Well, apparently one of the children was one of the elders from the LDS. And they didn't just build a church. They actually took over an old Safeway grocery operation, and they actually built a large facility with, um, with a gymnasium and 20 underground parking spaces. Now, my church is in the middle of the city, and most of the people who come to see us, the first thing they complain about, there's no place to park. But my pastor said that what the LDS leader told him, he said, you know, you only charge a $300 a month for all 30 of us to use your church basement to get together. He said, as far as I'm concerned, you gave that away to us. So guess what? Whenever you want to come use our gym or our facility, you can use it anytime for free. Making friends before you need friends. You have no impact how that's going to be. I'll tell you one other wild story. We used to have a, a, a church that used to rent our church on Sundays. Now the pastor of that church is a member of our church. <laughs> Ended up getting baptized and bringing some of her members, or basically created a whole strife in her church. 
ended up losing her other job because one of the members of her church was there when she told them, we're worshiping on the wrong day. We're not operating within the right truth. And there will be some people that will tell you you should never allow your church to be used for these type of things because that's not a godly spirit. That's non-Adventist. My brothers and sisters, all I'm trying to say is that if we're good stewards, part of being a good steward is how you manage the resources of your church, how you allow people to be able to be impacted by what God has for you to do. If somebody had told me that the pastor of a church preaching in my church on Sunday would eventually be a pastor who preaches in my church on Sabbath today, I might have said, you're crazy. But that's not my responsibility to save people. All I'm called to be is to be faithful. All I'm called to be is to do my part. And in the name of stewardship, just to recount, if we can make sure that we focus ourselves on being persistent, if we focus ourselves on make sure that we are being planning, if we make sure that we are being proportionate, generous in what God has had for us to do, the more that he's been with us, the more we can be with him, and then we have to be pleasant, please be pleasant. Please, please, please be pleasant. There's nothing what a smile does in terms of Christianity that will bring somebody closer to God. And last but not least, be purposeful in what you do. And if you ask God, he will make sure to bring that to you. Those are my five biblical principles on stewardship from an expansive standpoint. Tomorrow we're going to finish up our last session. We're going to be talking about stewardship of the earth. What does it mean to be a good steward of this beautiful earth that God has given us? Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Please. Oh, sure. Uh, The first one was persistence. The second one was planning. The third one was being proportionate or generous or sacrificial. Um, the next one after that is being pleasant. And then the last one is being purposeful. Now those are just my five. You probably have another 50 you could add to the list. But I think if you start with a core five, it'll allow you to be able to put some other pieces in place. And I just ask that the Lord will continue to bless us and direct us so that we may be good stewards. And uh, if there's no more questions or comments, why don't we just close with a word of prayer? Let's bow our heads. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you today for giving us a little bit of insight in what it might be to be a good steward for you, Lord. And, And how from a biblical standpoint, we can be comfortable with managing and not having to own. We can be comfortable with having dominion and control and authority, but still not be in a position that we need to own. And I just simply ask, Lord, that you would allow us to take our gifts and hone them, to be used to lift you up, but more importantly, to be used to lift up others. And help us, Lord, in whatever else we do while we're here, that we may be a witness for you and one day see Jesus, Lord. And last but not least, Lord, I just want us to remember one thing and one thing only, that if we seek ye first the kingdom of God, and your righteousness, that all these other things will be added unto you and be added unto us. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen.